a part of God's ongoing provision and care among us here in Catrum is the Velikots family arrival in our town. And it's lovely to have Liz reading to us and Phil going to teach us in a few moments' time. Liz. We're reading from 1 Timothy, chapter 1, starting at verse 12. If you did pick up a church Bible on the way in, it's on page 1191. So 1 Timothy, chapter 1, from verse 12 through to verse 17. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory for ever and ever. Amen. Well, if you've got a Bible in front of you, if you could open to that passage, we're going to look at it uh, together now. George Whitfield is regarded to be the greatest preacher of the 18th century. In 1739, he went to America to share the gospel there. At one of the gatherings, one of the listeners was the well-known atheist and statesman Benjamin Franklin. Seeing him listen to Whitfield, someone said to Ben, why are you here? You don't believe what he says. I know, said Franklin, but he does. Franklin's observation was that Whitfield preached the gospel like a man who believed in the gospel's power and strength. And in his day, Whitfield himself blasted the church because, to use his words, most preachers talk of an unknown and an unfelt Christ. The reason why congregations have been so dead is because they have dead men to preach to them. You see, Whitfield realized that the only Christ worth preaching is the known living Lord Jesus. He realized that the only way to grab the next generation with the gospel was to be gripped with it himself and to be filled with a passion and burning love for Jesus. And Paul in our passage this morning says exactly that. The gospel message shared faithfully and lived out powerfully must be the Christian's primary strength and purpose. And the reason is because if we forget that central gospel message, or if we become proud and trust in, let's say, the Oak Hall brand, or if we grow lazy and start to just simply assume that everybody knows what we're about, the church will not grow. The gospel message will be diluted. And that is why this morning we need to hear this message once more. The only way this church will continue to grow over the next 125 years is if we know the gospel and share 
the gospel and just simply not assume that we do. The only way this church will continue to grow for the next 125 years is if we never tire of hearing this good news about Jesus and never tire of telling the good news about Jesus. Paul, in his letter to, the, uh, to, to Timothy, writes to warn Timothy's church that the message of false teachers amongst them was weak and it was powerless to save people. So having earlier in this chapter charged Timothy to challenge those false teachers to stop their stupidity, Paul goes on in in this bit of the passage to illustrate the power and the reality of the gospel. And he does it simply by sharing his testimony. And we're going to look at that now. So look at verse 12 with me, if you've got it in front of you. I'll read it out if not. He says in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. So what Paul does is he starts out by pointing that his his apostleship, his right to write to Timothy and, and, and tell him about the gospel is God's given appointment. Jesus gave him strength, says Paul. Jesus considered him faithful. Jesus appointed him for service. And he establishes this apostleship because he wants them to listen, not to him, Paul, but he wants them to listen to what Jesus has to say to them about the good news and about his powerful, majestic message that brings people into relationship with God. So he starts with facts. What he once was before an apostle. And it's the first point that he he makes. The true gospel, the true message about Jesus is honest about what we once were honest about what we once were. Look at verse 13, because at the beginning of verse 13, he calls himself a a blasphemer, his former self, a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Basically, his point is that before he was a Christian, he was completely opposed to God. And you might wonder how he could have called his former self a blasphemer considering his former self was an upright Jewish man who committed himself to following the the Ten Commandments religiously? Well, Paul is clear. He was a blasphemer because his life was against Jesus. In his former life, Paul scoffed at the prospect that Jesus, a peasant from Nazareth, could be the Messiah from God that the Jewish people were waiting for. So he treated Jesus' name with contempt and he persecuted the church, everyone who did believe that Jesus was from God. And later in, in Acts, we're told that just before his conversion, Paul was the church's most dangerous opponent. Not only that, he was an opponent of God. The term violent man in verse 13 of our passage is better translated an insolent opponent. Basically, He was perfectly assured of his own faith and he believed he was right to persecute those Jesus freaks that were hanging around and telling him and telling them about Jesus. And listen, before we zone out, 
wondering what this has got to do with us. It's good to realize that although Paul uses these words to describe his condition before he was a Christian, they are also also deliberately chosen words to describe the condition of everybody who doesn't know Jesus personally. And, And this is his link. Everybody, even if we became Christians from an early age, everybody has at one time been a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent, stubborn and arrogant, an opponent of God. That's what Paul describes as the term a sinner. And unlike the false teachers around Timothy who prided themselves in their ability to teach the law and keep the law, and in doing so, please please God. Paul is saying no one can be proud of what we once were. No one can claim to be right before God in and of ourselves, by our own right, just by being us. Paul's saying everybody born into this world is a sinner. And therefore, in that condition, how must we expect our perfect God to act? If you're anything like I was before I was a Christian, well, you might resonate. I expected God to overlook my wrongs, or my failings, as I like to call them. I expected God to just accept me. I expected to get to heaven and God to say, Oh, it's Phil. Well, you'll do. My attitude was, surely God couldn't send someone like me to hell. I'm just a nice bloke. I try hard. But I did that because I thought God was like me, and I thought God was on my side. But in telling us what he was like before he was a Christian, Paul is saying God is nothing like us. God is perfect. And the way we treat God is wrong. Our expectations of God are unrealistic. And we deserve God's anger at the way that we treat him. An anger that is an eternal anger. Now, I realize that sounds like quite a depressing view of life. But, you know, I hope it's a bit of a reality check. Because once we understand this, once we understand what God is really like, then we understand the power of what Paul says next. He says, and this is the second point, the true gospel is honest about the work of God. So Paul goes on in verse 13 and 14 uh, to, to marvel at God's work in his heart. Because in those days before he knew Jesus, he was, whilst he was still breathing out murderous threats against the church, Jesus appeared to him. That's amazing. In the very act of persecuting the church of Christ, he literally, when you read the story in Acts 8, he was literally sharpening his knives on his way to Damascus, basically going there in order to persecute, to imprison Christians. And as he was on his way, Jesus appeared to him in person. Verse 14. 
the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That word grace is, 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 is completely foreign in our country, in our culture. We don't use it culturally like it used to be used. So I want to just illustrate what grace means in a Christian context by telling you this story. On the 6th of December, um, 2014, a lady called Helen Johnson, who was a 47-year-old woman from the town of Tarrant in the United States, stuffed five eggs into her pockets after she discovered that even with all the money she had, $1.25, she couldn't afford the price of those eggs. Of course, she said, when I put them in my jacket pocket, they broke. She later told uh, news reporters, I'm not a very good thief. But even before making it out the door, she'd been stopped by staff and told that the police had been called. However, instead of arresting her, when he arrived, Tarrant police officer William Stacey took out his own wallet and paid for the eggs. He then talked to the supermarket's officials who said they wouldn't press charges and he gave Mrs. Johnson, who was waiting, a box full of eggs. She started crying. She got very emotional and was apologetic, said uh, Officer Stacey to reporters. Even when I told her the eggs were mine to give her, she still tried to pay me back. It felt like the right thing to do. I didn't want to pass judgment on her, he added. The, the, the touching moment of the incident was actually caught on mobile phones, as when she received the eggs, she hugged the officer with gratitude. Her debt had been cancelled. She was free to go. Now, if I were to stop the story there, that would only be a picture of mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Officer Stacy showed her what mercy looks like. But the story continues because the following week, on hearing the story of the officer's kindness and having seen the mobile phone footage on the news... The Tarrant police force were inundated with calls from people all over America offering food and money and clothing to Helen's family. Later on that week, the police arrived at her house, not to deliver justice, neither to assure her that they had been merciful, but to deliver two cars full of food and clothes for the family. Now that's what grace is. Grace is greater than mercy, not being treated in a way that you deserve. Grace is being treated in a way that you totally do not deserve. Grace not only deals fairly with the demands of justice, it not only takes away the punishment of a crime, but it lavishes abundant goodness on the criminal. That is the mind-blowing concept of grace. Grace is two carloads of goods delivered to your door as a response to your shoplifting. And I use that illustration of grace because it's sometimes really hard for us to understand. It's hard to understand how great the love that Christ has given to us by dying on the cross. That whilst we were enslaved in our sinful attitude towards God, whilst we walked around this world thinking that God would do God would do God our way and, and, and re- revolve his life around us. God sent Jesus into this world to die and to die for that exact attitude. And not only does Jesus take away the punishment for that attitude, but he also fills our life 
with the Holy Spirit so that we are changed to be more like him. A power that means we can change. A power that we, that means he comes into our lives and our lives revolve around him. That is grace. And in verse 15, he says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Sometimes we see grace in the same way that we see a Monet painting on the front of a postcard. When you get that postcard or when you see it on a postcard, it's a nice picture, but it's not all that impressive. But go to the National Gallery and you'll find the real painting there. It's seven foot tall, it's 12 foot wide. You walk into the room and it's like, it's like a shock value. Boom, there it is, in all its glory. And in the same way, often we, we talk about grace in terms of a banal postcard-sized sentiment without fully considering the huge, mind-blowing impact of what Paul says in verse 15. But look at it now, the full 7 by 12 foot version. Jesus came into this world to save sinners. He, God the Son, came into this world and he died a sinner's death because of this world's cruelty and he rose again to break the power of sin in this world. And Jesus, the God of the universe, met Paul on a road and changed him personally. He saved him by pouring out his grace into Paul's soul, the worst of sinners. That is a joyful, joyful message. It's a mind-blowing good news that Paul preached, and it has the power to change men and women throughout time and history. Paul's testimony is that when he understood the grace of God, it was such a life-blowing away experience that he stopped his persecutions then in their tracks, and he dedicated his life to preaching that very good news. And ever since, people have been changed and called to follow Jesus, and their turnaround has been dramatic and profound. And Paul's point is simple. The gospel message is huge. It has huge power in the life of the ordinary person to change them dramatically and wonderfully and in a way that religiosity and atheism and modern secularism can and never will match. If you're not a Christian here this morning, if you're, if you're holding God at a distance, let me simply ask you the question... Does your worldview change lives? Does it take a murderous sinner like Paul and make him into someone who loves and cares and gives his life joyfully to a simple message? Does it do that? Will your atheism change your life in such a dramatic way? Will it take you from, from prostitution into, into serving, uh, serving God joyfully? Will it take you from drug, drug addiction or alcohol addiction into serving God joyfully? Will it save you from this world? You see, Paul's dramatic, dramatic story reminds us that the true gospel of God's work and that grace of God to send his son into this world has real power. Real power to bring the worst of sinners like you and me into a relationship with God 
and real power to change us from enemies of God to lovers of God and giving real life. And this morning we're giving thanks to God for his faithfulness and provision of a new building for us and a new stage in Oak Hall, but far more we're celebrating the great gospel Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example of those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. You see, this is a natural direction of God's grace. Not only are we saved from our sin and given through forgiveness through Jesus Christ, but we're also saved so that Jesus might show the universe how patient and gracious he is. So, so our role in the universe is similar to the role of a trophy room in a, in a Premier League club. Crystal Palace supporters might not understand what that is. <laughs> Sorry, I'll, I'll leave now, shall I? But if you go into a, a trophy room of a, of a Premier League club, that's where all the silverware uh, that the club has won over the years is kept on display. And each trophy tells a story about how great the team was in that particular year. Right now and ever since, just like Paul, each Christian has the same function as one of those trophies in the trophy room. Each Christian will one day be on display for all the universe to see and marvel at. Verse 16 tells us it's not just for now, but it's God's eternal plan carried out through Jesus. So when the universe on the day Jesus returns looks at Christians like you and me in the church, they will marvel at Christ's patience. That he could consider saving a sinner like me and you. They will marvel at the sins that Jesus has died for and forgiven. They will marvel at how people like you and me have changed. They will marvel at the love of God that that has been lavished upon ordinary Christians. And similarly, when the time comes to look through history at the whole church over time, we will be stunned at God's grace and patience in this world over that time. We will be astounded at the grace of God that we, in all the hodgepodge and sin of flawed characteristics, that we might be saved and united to Christ and on display for all of creation to see. That's what we're saved for. So this is the powerful message that has been entrusted to Paul and to us today as we continue to take the gospel to this area of Surrey and the world. And the question remains, how do we respond? And that's our last point this morning. Paul models response because he praises God. I love it. um, You can tell the Bible is written by very honest people and, and, and you can tell the Bible is not one of those nicely edited, um, beautiful books. Because what you get here is up to verse 16, he's, he's, he's following a, a train of thought. He's got the thread of his argument very clear. And then verse 70 goes, 17, he just goes, oh, stuff it. I, I just don't care now. I'm, I'm just going to praise God. Look at it, verse 17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisen, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He sees the grace, he sees the love, he sees the faith that is all God's gift to him, and he just goes, I just don't care about the argument anymore, I just want to praise my God for him. And 
And if ever there's a point to make about the power and the beauty of the way that God has treated his people, it's here. Christians are saved in eternity by the grace of God for the glory of Jesus. And there is no eternal power in any message other than the gospel of Christ. This is the true and powerful gospel of Christ. And in realizing this, our response can only be praise and wonder and awe. If you're a Christian here this morning, like Paul does here, our response must be a renewed desire to worship the Son of God who came into this world to save sinners like us. And I hope this morning that as we've stepped back to marvel at this gospel message, it challenges us to respond in praise and thanks, as Paul does in the beginning of this section. And to respond not just with words of praise or songs of praise, but with lives of praise. Lives that praise God by living out the freedom of the gospel. We're not slaves to law. We're not slaves to doing right and not doing wrong and wearing the right things and not wearing the wrong things. We're not slaves. We live out the great gospel, the good news of Jesus. Lives that live out the freedom from the power of sin over us. Freedom to love God and not to fear him. Freedom to talk to others about him in a way that shows we know him personally. Freedom to live lives in the freedom of knowing our time and energy given to him is an eternal investment that will be rewarded ten times over. There is freedom. There is praise. And if you are a Christian here this morning, can you bow your head and simply say, Lord Jesus Christ, I give my life to praise you in all its entirety. To praise you at work by living an honest work life. To praise you in church by giving generously and sacrificially time and energy and money. By praising you to talk to non-Christian friends about Jesus. There is my praise, Lord God Almighty, because of the grace and the love that you have lavished upon me. Will you praise like Paul praises? Go off on one. Honestly, go off on one. To him be the glory forever and ever and ever. And perhaps this is the first time you've understood the grace of God. Perhaps you've, this is the first time you've heard what the grace of God really means. Well, this morning, will you look once more at the person of Jesus? Will you look at yourself in relationship to God and how you treat God honestly? And will you talk to him? Will you confess the way that you have treated God? And ask him for his grace. Ask him to treat you like you don't deserve. So that you might know him. And love him. And praise him. Forever and ever. Let's pray together. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God.
be honor and glory forever and ever. Father God, we thank you for this great good news of Jesus Christ that has brought us into relationship with you. We thank you that because of your love, we can know you. Because of your work in us, we can live for you. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds this morning to this. I pray, Lord God, for those of us who are unsure about who you are, I pray, I pray that we would search for you and not stop searching till we find you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Listen, if you want to find out more, grab someone with a lanyard. I've got uh, some of these booklets called The Real Jesus. If you want to find out about Jesus for the first time or just want a, a refresher, grab one of these for me. Alternatively, you can come tomorrow night. Um, we've got a Christianity Explore course. I, I, I say it every time, but honestly, I love the person who comes saying, I'll look at Jesus for you because I've not looked at him before properly. And, and, and I honor the person, I honestly honor the person who says, I'll come and have a look, read through the, the, the book of Mark together, that's what we do on Christianity Explored. And at the end of it, they go, well, that's not for me. I honor that person because you've looked at it and carefully examined and have said, okay, Jesus isn't God. I can tick him off the bucket list and move on. If that's you, do just join us. Great coffee. Come with any question you want. Um, and, 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 and we'll try and answer it as best we can. But really, it's an opportunity to look at the person of Jesus for ourselves uh, so that we can work out who he is and whether he has a place in our lives.